Hey, it's good to be back with you this week. Let's take our Bibles, <clears throat> whether you're here in the room or you're at home, and open the Psalm 37 in the Old Testament, Psalm 37. Want to welcome those who join us on Facebook Live, on our webcast, on our television broadcast, and those of you who are at the Church of Shepherd and the West Campus. So we're glad that you're here, glad that you're here today as well. Welcome. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, I had to be in Dallas, and I went into Baylor University Medical Center, which is like a, it's like a university campus almost. There's so many buildings. But I went into the Truett Building, and in the lobby of the Truett Building, there is this remarkable display. There are all of these hands in, in, a, in these glass cases. And I started looking at them because I, I had to wait for a few minutes. And they are the work of an orthopedic surgeon named Dr. Adrian Flatt. Dr. Flatt was a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon. He specialized in the hand, as you would probably guess. But he also had a hobby, and that was that when he met someone famous, he would ask them for their handprint. And what he would do was he would make a, a wax cast of the hand, and then he would bronze it, and he would sculpt it. Inside those cases are some of his work. There are the hands of eight United States presidents, from Harry Truman to Ronald Reagan. There are the hands of great athletes in that same period of time, like Mickey Mantle and Roger Staubach, the famous pianist from uh, Fort Worth, Van Cliburn. And there were a couple that really got my attention. One looked like a catcher's mitt, and I went over to look at it, and it was the hand of Andre Rusimov, better known to people my, my generation as Andre the Giant. I mean, this guy's hand was about like that big. It was incredible. You know, hands are distinct. Hands are, are like fingerprints. Everybody's hand looks just a, a little bit different. And it's interesting to me in the Bible, when the Bible talks about the work of God, many times it refers to it as the moving of his hand. There are four ways that God's hand moves in the Bible. One is God's hand provides. Hold your hand out like you're giving me something. God's hand provides. God's hand protects. It's a shield. Make, make a shield with your hand. God's hand points the way. It guides. The, the hand of God guides. And God's hand is powerful to crush his enemies. His, God's hand provides. God hands, God's hand protects. God's hand points the way. And God's hand is powerful enough to crush any enemy. And David in the Old Testament knew those attributes of God's hand. And he needed to remember them. Throughout David's life, David had come to realize that God had provided for him. That God's hand had moved in David's life. And he had made a way for him. That God's hand had protected David on many occasions. That he had led David and guided him all his life and pointed the way. And that God had shown his power even through David when he killed Goliath. And when he won great battles and victories. And David looks back on his life, and he is now a man of some age. I think David is one of those people in Scripture that we think of as forever young. He's forever the guy who killed Goliath, the teenager. He's forever the young king, or he's forever the guy who really messed up and committed adultery with Bathsheba. We think of him as youthful. But by the time David writes Psalm 37, David is an old man, and he's looking back. And he wants to help us with something that I think is very relevant. The theme of Psalm 37 is, is this. How do we respond when people who are wicked, when people who are sinful, when people who are far from God, 
they seem to have like a really smooth life and we have a rough life as followers of, of Jesus. How, how do we respond to that? The big question that David is seeking to answer in Psalm 37 is a question that you may not have asked this way, but I'll guarantee you it's occurred to you in your mind. And that is, why do good things happen to bad people? Now, I know you've asked the opposite of that question, the reverse. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we usually ask that question when something bad happened to us and we think of ourselves as good. But sometimes in life, you're being faithful. You're, you're serving God. You're giving your money like you're supposed to. You're trying to be moral. Um, you're making the right kind of choices. And it feels like life is just hard. It just feels like life is, is a weight on you. And everywhere you turn, there's a, a roadblock in front of you. And you look over at your neighbor and they don't give any reverence to God. They don't give any deference to God. They never show up at church. I mean, th these are people that you know are far from God. They cuss like a sailor. And you're like, their life seems to be really smooth. I don't get it. There seems to be no equity in the universe. What is up with that? Why do good things happen to those bad people? That's what we ask. Well, David wants to help us deal with that question. And he does so in this psalm. And he gives us some, some sound advice. And I realize that some of you came to church today and maybe these are the shoes that you're in. And you're going, why, why does my faithfulness seem to go unrewarded or even unnoticed by God? So listen to what David would say to that. In Psalm 37, verse 1, do not fret or do not be upset by evildoers. Be not, be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Now, the rest of this psalm really carries that same theme, but I want to skip over. It's a long psalm. I'm not going to read it entirety, in its entirety. But look at verse 23. Verse 23. The steps of a man, that is a righteous man, are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Now, I know that when we talk about holding someone's hand, for most of us, that's usually a statement that we would make about maybe a parent to a child. I mean, if I'm in a big city with my daughter and uh, she's not accustomed to all that traffic and all those traffic lights and things like that, and we're crossing an intersection, even at her age now, I reach out and I say, hold my hand. But if she stumbled as we were going across that road, what she would figure out pretty quickly is that she's not holding my hand. I'm holding hers. And David had learned in his life, I want you to hear me on this. David had learned in his life that yes, he was holding God's hand, but more importantly, God was holding David's hand. 
And that is the beauty of this passage of Scripture. And so I looked at this psalm and I said, you know what, I think that's really the key to this deal. I think that's the key to our understanding this. Because we as adults or as young adults, as teenagers, we don't want to be, we don't, we don't want to have to have somebody hold our hand. I mean, we get to a, uh, that age and stage in life when dad wants to hold your hand, you pull it away. No, I'm, I'm, I'm like, a, I'm independent. But David had come to a place of realizing that the fact that God was holding his hand was the greatest comfort and the greatest assurance that he could ever have. And here's what David would say to you and me. When, when the Lord holds your hand, first of all, you don't need to be anxious. If the Lord is holding your hand, you don't need to be anxious. Look at verse one again. Let me just remind you. He says, do not fret because of evildoers. Some of your translations say, do not be upset because of evildoers. Some say, do not be anxious because of evildoers. And what's happening in this passage is that David is saying, stop living your life by comparison to people who do not share your values, your faith, your priorities. Stop looking over at their life and allowing that to well up inside you. The word that is translated fret or upset there is a word that means to heat up. It's a word that would have been used in the ancient Hebrew for a pot of water set over a fire. When you set a pot of water over a fire, at first nothing happens. And then a few bubbles start to bubble to the surface and then it begins to boil and the whole thing begins, the cauldron almost begins to boil over. And David says, that's what happens in your soul when you compare yourself to the wicked. You begin to say, well, they've got it so easy. And you begin to boil just a little. You begin to simmer. And it looks like, you know, the old adage, the grass is greener on the other side. And it looks like their life is so much better than yours. And you begin to live your life by comparison. And pretty soon you become embittered and sarcastic about everything in life. You become a cynic. And David said, don't, don't go down that road. Don't head down that road. And, and whatever you do, David would say, don't envy them. Everything you think they have is either temporary or an illusion. Everything you have is permanent, eternal, and real. You see, I think in our generation... We have focused way too much on the here and now. And we forget that the rewards of living a life for Jesus are in heaven. They're not here. And the TV preachers tell you that what God exists for is to make you rich and healthy and happy. And your reward is never, was never intended to be of this world. Your reward is an eternal reward laid up for you in heaven. It will not perish. It doesn't fade away. Moths don't come in and, and eat it up and thieves can't steal it away. We need to stop looking at people who do not share our values and envying the life that they have because the life that we have is eternal life. Envy will corrode your soul, by the way. I was working on this sermon. I found a an article that I'd clipped out of a paper about what envy can actually do to you. Sonia and Cindy competed at everything. They lived in a small town in Iowa and they competed from the day they entered the first grade together in that school. 
They were constantly trying to see who could one-up the other, who could be better than the other, who could make better grades, who could win the race on the playground. When they got to junior high, they started competing to see who could be the head cheerleader. When they got to high school, they entered these beauty pageants and, and these competitions. And in, uh, in, senior, in, in high school, Cindy won the title of Harvest Princess. But Sonia, that same year, was crowned the homecoming queen. But most of all, they competed for the affection and the attention of the star football player. Of course they did. And they tried to, to vie for his attention. And ultimately, the young man chose Sonia. And Cindy was envious and embittered. So one September night, the harvest princess took a belt and strangled the homecoming queen to death underneath the football stadium stands. True story. But that's what envy does to your soul. And what David would say to you and me is, when you look around you and it looks like other people have this really smooth life and yours is so hard, number one, it's probably not true. Their life is not as smooth as they make it look. Their Facebook feed is a highlight reel, not real life. And he says, look, here's the answer. When you find yourself in that situation, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious over anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When the Lord holds your hand, you don't have to be anxious. He's in control. He's got this deal. Second, when the Lord holds your hand, you have nothing to fear. When the Lord holds your hand, you have nothing to fear. The opposite of fear is faith. And that's what, what David challenges us to do in verse 3. To trust. To totally trust. The word trust in the Hebrew Old Testament means to lean. It means to put your weight against something. And David says, I want you to put all your weight. I want you to put all of your trust on the Lord and the Lord alone. And when you do that, you don't have to fear for your future. You don't have to fear for your provision. You don't have to fear what is going to happen next. We are living in some of the most uncertain days that in my short life I have ever lived through. These are really uncertain days. They're chaotic times. And I need to know there's somebody that's got this deal. And David is saying to you and me, his times were chaotic too. And he says, I know God's got this. And so I don't have to fear. Here's what he would say to you. He'd say, first of all, trust the Lord with what you want. Trust the Lord with your wants. Look at verse five, I, uh, verse four. I love verse four. If you memorize verses, verse four is a great verse to memorize, uh, but it needs to be explained. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is a great promise of scripture, rightly understood. Psalm 37 verse 4 is not a blank check that God signed and you get to fill in with whatever it is you want in life. That's not what it is. The key to understanding Psalm 37 verse 4 is not in the desire side, which most of us think about. The key to understanding Psalm 37 verse 4 is in the delight side. You see... If you use that verse and you say, I'm going to delight myself, Lord, so I'll go to church 
And I might even read my Bible. And while I prayed, you know what? I even gave some money. I am delighting in you, God, so give me the desires of my heart. That won't work. But if you truly will try and begin to delight yourself in the Lord, if you will delight in who he is, if you will worship him with a passionate heart, if you will seek him in prayer and seek him fervently. The Bible says, if you seek, God says, you seek me and you will find me. God will not play hide and go seek with you. If you seek him, you will find him. And he says, if you will pursue me passionately, then something amazing is going to happen. And here's what's going to happen. God will begin to align your desires with your delight. If you delight in him, your desires will be for his glory and his honor and his kingdom and his will to be done in your life, in your church, in your city, in your nation, and in the world. It's what Jesus said in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. That's the New Testament equivalent of Psalm 37, verse 4. Trust the Lord with your wants. Now, you say, well, Bob, you know what? I've really done the best I could to delight myself in the Lord. I love God. I worship God. I pursue God. I'm reading his word. I, I, I try to seek God in prayer. I'm really trying to delight myself in the Lord, but there's this area in my life and I'm asking God to move and God to provide and there's not an answer. I am convinced that that does happen to us sometimes and here's what I think God is saying. God is saying, no, I have something better in mind. I have something better in mind. And I think we'd have to trust God sometimes that our plans might be good. It's not that our plans are bad or evil or sinful, but just God's plan is better. It's so much better than what we could ask or think or even imagine sometimes. Trust God with what you want. Second, trust God to show you the way. Look at verse five. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. I was studying this this week and I have been waiting all morning to say this part. Because in the first couple of services, I got a lot of adults who have pretty much, they've plotted out the way, the path of their life. But I got people sitting to the left and the right right here and you are making big decisions about your life. And I just wanna challenge you. Commit your way to the Lord. I want to challenge you to say, God, what is it that you created me for? What is it that you want me to pursue? What is it that you want from my life? What would bring you the greatest glory in my life? You commit your way to the Lord and the Bible says, and he will do it. He will bring it to pass. Now there's something of a chain here that David is linking together. You begin by delighting yourself in the Lord and he begins to work on your wants and your priorities and your pursuits. And then you commit your way to the Lord and he begins to open doors for you to pursue that. But sometimes it takes time. So here's what God says. He says, I want you to trust me for what you want. I want you to trust me for your way, for the way you should go. And I want you to trust me in the waiting. Look down at verse seven. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
I had some of you to that. You're like, ah, oh, no. Wait patiently, rest in the Lord. Really? Just passively sit back? No, resting in the Lord and waiting patiently isn't passive. It's simply that you don't try to force open a door that's not opened by the Lord. And secondly, you don't try to escape from something where God's teaching you a lesson. The biggest mistakes that I've made in my life, and I'm thankful that they weren't irreparable, but the biggest mistakes I've made in my life, if I look back, I can put them under one of those two categories. Either I was shoving open a door that God was saying, it would be best if that stayed closed, Bob. You don't really want what's on the other side. You think you want what's on the other side of that door. It would be best if we kept this shut. But I just push and I pry. And I say, I got to go through that. I got to do that. Not my best move. Or when I was so impatient because something was hard, because something was time consuming, because something was difficult. And I said, I want out of this. I want to quit. I want to escape this. Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, there is a story of a man named Joseph. Joseph was the favored son in a family with 12 boys. He was not the oldest, but he was the favorite. And his brothers hated him for it. So one day they caught him away from their father and they said, let's sell him as a slave. And they did it. They told dad he was dead and they sold Joseph as a slave. Joe's go, Joe goes from favored son to slave. He's purchased by an Egyptian general named Potiphar. Potiphar puts him in his house and man, everything Joseph touches succeeds. It's like he's got the Midas touch. Everything turns to gold and everything's going well until... He catches Mrs. Potiphar's eye and General Potiphar's not home one day and Mrs. Potiphar says to this young Hebrew slave boy, I want you to come and have an affair with me. Joseph is a man of moral fortitude. He's a man of character and integrity and Joseph says, no, I can't do that. And he runs away and she accuses him of rape. So Joseph goes from favored son to slave to prison. Potiphar throws him in prison. One day, a couple of Pharaoh's servants show up. They've gotten on the wrong side of Pharaoh, and he throws them in prison. They have these dreams. Joseph, by God's power, interprets dreams. And so he gives one of them the bad news. Uh, you're not going to make it uh, out of this deal. You're going to be executed. That's not good news. But he tells the other one, you're going to be restored to your position. And sure enough, all of a sudden, these guards come in one day and they take out the, the baker and they take him out and he's hanged. And then they take the cupbearer, probably a ceremonial position, the guy who handed Pharaoh his cup. And they take him and they say, you're going to go back to the palace. You're going to go back to your job, your position, your fortune. And on the way out, I can just hear him as he says, Joseph, I'll never forget you. I'll never forget this, Joseph. There's going to be a time. I'm going to remember you, Joseph, and I'll get you out of this place. I'll get a full pardon for you. I promise. And for two years, for two years, Joseph sat in silence in that prison cell. God, where are you? I honor 
honored my father and my brothers sold me as a slave. I resisted sexual temptation and I got thrown in prison for it. I've prophesied these dreams to these men just like you told me and it's come to nothing. God, where are you? Sometimes in the waiting. No, I'm going to rephrase that. All the time in the waiting, God is working. Joseph just couldn't see it. And neither can you. Sometimes you can't see God's hand at work. But God is working when you don't know what he's up to. Because one day, Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can figure out what it means. And they all believe dreams meant things. Nobody can figure it out. And the cupbearer goes, that guy in prison, what was his name? Jerry? Jason? No, Joe. Go get Joe. And in a matter, when I read my Bible, I think it happened in about 15 minutes. They clean Joseph up real quick and they rush him into Pharaoh. He interprets a dream and all of a sudden he goes from the prison to second in command to the most powerful man in the world at that time. God was at work. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. When God holds your hand, you have nothing to fear. Third, when the Lord holds your hand, you will never fall. When the Lord holds your hand, you will never fall. Now, I want to explain this verse in verse 24, but it's the one that really got my attention when I was studying through this passage and when I read through it. Verse 25, uh, verse 23 says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. Your footsteps will not slip, basically. He delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Now, what does that mean? I, I just told you you won't fall. It says when he falls. What does that mean? If you read this in various translations, and that's what I try to do when I'm studying my Bible sometimes, if something seems confusing to me, I'll go read maybe another translation. And one translation said, when he slips, he will not fall. One translation said, when he stumbles, he will not fall. That's probably the best of the translations. In other words, yes, we're all going to stumble. All of us do. We know that. We admit that. None of us are perfect. We all stumble. But when the Lord holds your hand, you won't face plant. That's what that means. You may stumble, but you won't face plant. I saw a story from last Wednesday that got my attention that really helps to explain this. Last Wednesday, Emily Harrington, uh, two weeks ago Wednesday, Emily Harrington became the first female to ever free climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. She did it in less than 24 hours. Now, free climbing is an interesting sport, not one that I intend to try. But free climbing, you don't go up with uh, with ropes and rappel ropes of with, that somebody else has put there. You climb with your hands and your, and your feet. And she was climbing and she did climb this, the, that granite wall. Now it's not as smooth as it looks. It's got crags and it's got little uh, notches in it that you can ha hold on to and put a foot on that sort of thing. But it takes her, it took her 21 hours to climb that granite rock face. It's incredible. 
But one thing that a free climber does have as a safety, I mean, you think about it, you get 1,500 feet up and if you don't have any kind of safety and you slip, uh, that slip's gonna be fatal. But a free climber has one safety. They are tethered with a rope to someone who climbs about 20 feet below them. So they can't assist them. But that person who is called the belayer, the belayer is there as the safety. They are there for one reason. If the free climber slips, they won't completely fall. On one occasion in the heat of the day, Emily said her hands got so sweaty against the rocks that there was one section in particular that she was trying to get up so that she could kind of rest for a few minutes on a ledge. And just almost as she got to that ledge, her sweaty hands slipped and she, and she fell. She slipped. Now in rock climbing, that's a slip. It'll cost you about 40 feet, the 20 feet you were up to, the 20 feet down where that rope comes to a sudden stop and jerks real quick. But her belayer held. She hit her head against the rock. She had a pretty rough gash on her forehead. So she has to start over and climb up past her belayer, get back up. She actually slipped twice, but she never fell. That slip cost her 40 feet. A fall would have cost her her life because she was being held by somebody else. Here's the way Jesus put it in John chapter 10. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus says, your soul is held in my hand. Your life is held in my hand. And the Father's hand covers the hand of Jesus. That is a picture of assurance and security that only God can provide. You see, when God holds your hand, you'll never really fall. You may stumble, you may slip but you will never fall. Don't look around at the world around you and compare your life to theirs. You are held in the hand of God. And I love what an old African-American preacher I heard say one time. He said, God's grip don't slip. God's grip does not slip. You take that home with you this week. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you to say and to be honest with you that sometimes we've looked around us and said, does faithfulness help? Does faithfulness count? But Lord, thank you for reminding us that our rewards are not in this world. And when our world looks out of control, you are in control and your hand is on us. Lord, I thank you for those in this room who can look back at a time in their life and know for certain that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. But for others who are watching this, for others who are in this place, Lord, I pray for them today if they've never trusted Christ that today would be the day that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn from their sin in honest confession and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. 
I have broken your commandments and I am separated from you. But I believe that your hands were nailed to a cross and your blood was shed to wash me clean from my sins. I believe that you were raised from the dead and that you are alive today. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior, Jesus. Father, I thank you for those who would pray a prayer like that. And I thank you that you've never turned anybody away. That all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone who's ever earnestly and honestly sought you, you've never turned anyone away. And so this morning, I pray for those who need to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.